0: Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Titus 2. Titus chapter 2. We have begun our year talking about the case for what our church is as what we would call a non-age segregated or family integrated church. Now this was intended to be finished last week as a, a, a two-part sermon, but we ran out of time. And that's only happened, this is only the second time in the five and a half years I've been preaching here where I have not finished what I intended to finish in a sermon, but indeed I did not. And it, it's for the best because as such... Um, I was able to add a little bit more to this final section that we'll talk about today, which is some of the, the, the potential hazards of what we are as a church. And that is really our warning of as we move forward with the philosophy that we uh, have espoused and with which this church was planted and, and, and with which we o- within which we operate, uh, the things that we need to look out for as a church body. Uh, last time we were together we talked about um, the fact that really the family integrated ministry model or the model where we don't break up our children into um, separate groups is the historical church model. And we traced that through history, right? We chased through, traced through history the fact that really Sunday school is something that began just in the late 1700s. Um, youth group, as we know it today, only began in the 60s, uh, the 1960s, that would be. And so these these elements that have become so prevalent in society today and in the church today are really very, very new to the church. And we talked about some of the problems that we see with age-segregated ministry. And as we do so, and as we did so, let me remind you that we did not present these problems within the context of saying that age-segregated ministry is inherently unbiblical or cannot work or, or any of those things. We, we do not espouse what we are as a non-age segregated church to say that everybody else is doing it wrong or that everybody else is being unbiblical. But what we did say and the foundation that we do lay is that based upon what we know and what we've observed in, in, in our study and history and the historical, practical, natural, and theological problems that we can identify with an age segregated model, We believe that the age segregated model as a whole is a hindrance to a child's ability to grow up and mature in the faith as opposed to helping it as a whole. And we talked about this from several different perspectives. First, we talked about the historical problems. And we mentioned that the historical reasons why Sunday school came into being and the historical reasons why youth group came into being are really not virtuous reasons. Sunday school had a place, a time and a place and a reason, and that was fine and that was good. It was there as an evangelistic outreach to young people who had no other time to learn how to read or to learn about the things of God. And then as age segregation and, um, and uh, compulsory education became very important in society, uh, that need kind of went away and the evangelistic need remained. And then as permissive parenting became a really popular and important thing uh, in the 60s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, then that evangelistic need kind of fell off the map in many places around the country at least, in, in Western society. And it just persisted primarily because age segregation has become pervasive in our society. At every level of society, everything is age segregated. And so we talked about the historical problems, and then as we get into youth group, the fact that youth group was created as a part of the Cultural Revolution, when young people were alienated from their parents, and instead of the church seeking to reconcile parents and children, the church confirmed the alienation by allowing the youth to be separated from their parents in youth group. And again, we've mentioned throughout all of these things that that is not the spirit of the church today, right? It's not the spirit of age segregated church today. They don't say we're going to have a youth group to alienate our young people from their parents. They don't say we're going to have Sunday school so that there can be a natural division between the young people and their parents and their parents won't know what they're learning. That's not the spirit of the church as it relates. But we recognize the historical foundations to be semi-problematic. Then we talked about the practical problems and those general practical problems with the age-segregated method, primarily that when you have an age-segregated method, because the children are lauded by physical age, they're not being categorized by spiritual maturity. And as they're not being categorized by spiritual maturity, the young people who get saved and, and desire to mature from a young age forward, unless their parents are being very active, are not learning in Sunday school. They're not learning in that time. And then those who um, are are lauded in by age as they interact with their own age group, they're not being uh, encouraged to see the role models of those who are older than them, of those who are pressing toward the mark, of those who have grown past where they are. And then we talked about the natural problems. And the, as we spoke of the natural problems, the primary natural problem is that One that we can see, whether it's, whether we talk about age segregated schooling, um, age segregated ministry, is that when a parent sends their child off, trusting that their child is going to receive something, whether, uh, you send them off to, to a public or a private school to receive instruction, or whether you send them off to a Sunday school or a youth group to receive instruction, you're trusting that those people are, number one, qualified, and then you are also trusting that um, by means of their qualifications, they're going to learn some things. And whether we, whether we intend it or not, there is a natural predisposition to lose a little bit of that urgency and responsibility for our own child as we kind of trust that they're going to go, they're going to learn some things, they're going to come back and they're going to be more godly for it or they're going to be more educated for it. And we we can you know argue those points back and forth or whatever we want to do, but uh, society has revealed today many of these problems even in age segregated schooling, public schooling and such. So we talked about that last time and and that's where we had to end. We had to end with the... Natural problems. We ran out of time, and we didn't get to get to the theological problem. Now, in my notes um, for this week, as we uh, hit that theological problem, one of the things that I mentioned is that uh, it, it's it's somewhat unpleasant to me that we didn't get to the Bible until then, right? So all of this was kind of historical foundation. I don't like preaching messages that 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 don't really dig into the Word of God. That's not something that we do around here. And so to have not gotten to the, to, to the Bible until the end of that message was a little bit of a regret of mine. And of course, we didn't even get to get to it last week. And so the theological part we hit today. Now, as we talk about this theologically... And I'll I'll mention this several times. I remind you, we're not saying that, that the age segregated model is theologically in error by default. But again, we're saying the tendencies toward missing what God has intended the family and the church to do and how they're intended to merge for spiritual instruction is at a disadvantage in an age segregated model. So let's talk about the theological problems that we uh, might relate to age-segregated ministry. And you're there in Titus chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 8. Bible says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors, becometh holiness." Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. So as we step into Titus, Paul is writing to Titus and he's exhorting Titus as to how he ought to perform his responsibilities as the pastor, elder, shepherd of his flock. The model of the Christian life here is that of speaking sound doctrine. That as the man of God gets up and he tells God's people what to do, that he should tell the elderly that they would be men of example, of consistency, and of faithfulness to doctrine. That the elder women would set the example of holiness and of purity. That they would teach the young women to honor the Word of God by being good wives and mothers. And that they would teach the young men to grow up to be serious about life having sound speech, sincere gravity, a a seriousness about life. Now, as we consider these concepts of, of the example that Titus has called, that Paul has called Titus to teach to the church, this brings us back to that practical problem. That when we are separating our children from not just their parents, But when we're separating our children from the church, from the congregation, from the elders in the church, from those who have fought the battle and won, from those who have been faithful from generation to the next, from those who have experienced this life, who have learned the lessons, when we are separating our children from that, we're putting them at a natural disadvantage. We're putting the church at a natural disadvantage to bring about the kind of sound doctrine that Titus is called upon to preach. In other words, we would recognize that an age-segregated model of ministry naturally predisposes division in the church, not multi-generational discipleship. One of the unique things that people often find among those who Homeschool, and not everyone in our church is a homeschooler, and I, I'm very pleased about that. I was public schooled, and I think that we need that. We need that in our church. We need those young people that are going into the public school and uh, are, are being a light there as well. I was able to lead many of my friends from public school to the Lord through my years there, and um, that's a good thing. However, you know, there, there are risks involved as well. But when we talk about one of the things that that if you want to talk about the stereotypes of homeschool children, right? One of the stereotypes is that they are far more comfortable speaking to adults. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but it's one of those things that you see in children who have been homeschooled is that they tend to be far more comfortable speaking to adults interacting with adults. And I can relate to this growing up as well. Uh, as as a young man who had been public schooled, and, and of course we were in an age-segregated church and whatnot, um, there was this kind of idea that I'm me, and they're them, and they do their thing, and I do my thing, and there's nothing between us. I was afraid of some. I was uh, just ambivalent to the rest. And this is because when we segregate segregate our children by age, they learn to see adults as something different. They learn to see adults as an entirely different stage of life, as something that is there, not as something that we are working toward, but as something that we will become one day. And you, you might assume, okay, Pastor, you're stereotyping again. And to a degree, we understand that, that we are broad brushing here. We're looking at tendencies and trends. There's always... The the exceptions. There's always churches that do things right, there's always schools that do things right. There's always parents that in the midst of these difficulties can still help their children, can still be active and involved in their children's lives. So I, I make no um, I, I don't pretend that I'm not broad brushing here. But if you look at cartoons, I don't know if any of you have, have watched children's cartoons, maybe you've avoided that for a long time. How do children's cartoons paint adults? If it's from a child's perspective, the adult is just that. I mean, effectively a foreigner, an alien, the authority, right? That—that That is how adults are painted. That is how adults are portrayed. And that's not a accident. That's not a coincidence. It is that way because that is what society has formed in our children. That is what age segregation forms in our children. That is what our children relate to. This idea that adults are this and we're this and, and there's a separation between us and we don't mix the two. That is what our society has become. We are an age-segregated society from beginning to end, from top to bottom. The whole of society has been segregated by age. And that's not a healthy thing. Rather than see elders as role models, as seeing these elders as their desired end, they, they, they are either ambivalent or they, or they fear them. And yet our elders are to be the example to the younger. The younger are to look up to them, to aspire unto them. How is the church to look? Well, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, uh, excuse me, yes, the younger as sisters with all purity. As Paul commands Timothy here, he says in the church, the church is to look like A family, respect, dignity, love, interaction, as a family would do, so should the church be. Now, is this impossible in an age-segregated model? No. But does it work against these goals? Well, that's our contention. That's where we stand that the age-segregated model predisposes separation between those that should be brought close together. Predisposes alienation rather than cooperation. And as Paul was giving an example of the church needing to get beyond the signed gifts and move on to more important elements of church life, namely that gift of charity... He said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. He said, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. If our purpose is parents, as those who are older in the church, uh, the elders of the church, not in a title uh, standpoint, but just from the aspect of being the, the adults, the elders in the church... If our purpose and if our goal is to raise up the next generation for the Lord, to raise up men and women, then why does the church spend so much time keeping them immature? Allowing them to rest in immaturity. Allowing them to stay both in faith and in action immature. How many young people do we know that would truly act like a Daniel or a Hananiah, Azariah, or a Mishael when put in difficult situations of, of faith? How many young people do we know that would actually act like a Samuel when confronted with circumstances of faith? These young people were asked to accept responsibility to serve the Lord even at a young age. And God was able to use them from an early age because they were ready to answer that call. Now, not every child does, not every child will. And we do not want to strip from our children the joys of childhood. That's not the purpose of the church. But it's also not the purpose of the church to to confirm our children in their immaturities, to let them simply rest in those immaturities, especially when it comes to the faith. Why aren't we asking the young people in our church to be a part of the body of Christ if they have accepted Christ as their Savior? Why aren't we asking them to grow up spiritually? Why aren't we urging them forward in the faith? Why is it that young people who have been saved since they're five or six years old don't begin to really get serious until 18, 19, 20, 21? I remember talking to a youth pastor some years ago. Uh, I was a, a part of a church that I had grown up in The youth pastor that I was under left and we got a new youth pastor in and I was in college at the time and I came back and I sat down with him because I was getting excited about serving the Lord and I wanted to be a part of these young people's lives, see, because I didn't commit fully to serving the Lord until I was 19 years old and as I, as a 19 year old, was growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and I was learning so much and I was getting excited about serving the Lord, and I was realizing that there's really no reason not to serve God with everything that I am, with every ounce of my being, I said, why didn't this happen to me five years ago? Six years ago? Seven years ago? And as I thought on that, I said, well, I've always wanted to do what was right, but there was this tension between me and the world and and I I wanted to do what was right but the world was calling and so I was living this double-minded life where I was being tugged toward wanting to do what was right and it was in there and I can remember it I can remember that pull to do what was right and to serve the Lord with all my heart but then you know that pull wasn't in anyone else my age or at least not that we talked about that's not what we talked about when we got together And I spent, of course, a lot more time around secular friends than I did around spiritual friends because I was public schooled. And I began to get this burden in my heart to to encourage young people that when you accept Christ as your Savior, God can use you today. God can use you now. You don't have to grow up first. What does that even mean? Yes, there are different maturity levels. Yes, there are certain things you can't do at, at a certain age. We understand that. There are certain things you can't do till you get a license or until you get strong enough or until you you know one thing or another but but spiritually speaking, we have young people who get saved at five or six years old, but they don't get serious until nineteen or twenty and then you have other people they, they accept Christ at 18, 19, 20, 21, and they just jump right in and they're ready to go and they they start learning and growing so quickly. Well, what if we could harness those years where our kids are down playing with glue sticks and glitter to teach them something, to grow them? And then this gets back to those practical problems, right? Little Johnny wants to grow, but Susie, Jim, and Brian don't. And Mr. Sunday School teacher has them all to deal with, right? So what do we do? We default to the glitter. And that's one of those practical problems that we talked about last week. Paul says, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Why aren't we asking our kids to grow up? Why isn't the church, busy preparing our children for the spiritual battle that they'll be facing one day on their own. What better way to prepare them than, than to put them among the veterans of the battle? That's simply the contention. Now, does that mean the age segregated isn't preparing or can't prepare? No, it doesn't mean that at all. If you've got a good youth pastor, I didn't finish that story. So I go up to my youth pastor, that, that new youth pastor, and I say, I just want to help these, these kids coming in from seventh grade at 12 or 13 years old on help them see that they can serve the Lord and to do what's right and to make these decisions. And that youth pastor looked at me. He was fresh out of a fundamentalist Baptist college and he said, you really can't expect children to make any serious decisions for God until college. So we're just here to maintain. He said that to me. And I looked at him and I was devastated. And I realized there's something seriously wrong with church today. When a young man goes to army boot camp, he's not learning from other rookies how to fight the battle, is he? He's learning from the veterans what they're going to face on the day of battle. He's getting prepared by people who have been there and who have done that. They, then after boot camp, they're not put into an entire unit of rookies, are they? They're put into a unit of seasoned veterans, if it's at all possible, so that those veterans, those warriors, can get them up to speed. It's not about their age, it's about their knowledge, it's about their ability, it's about their experience. The veterans keep the young guys from getting themselves killed, just like some veteran used to keep them from getting themselves killed. That's, that's how, that's how warfare works. You hope that you have enough experienced guys. That's how business works too, right? That's how every aspect of our of, of real life works. You hope that you have enough experienced guys that you can take the rookies and put them with someone with experience so that they can learn the lessons the easy way instead of having to learn it the hard way. But we don't do that in church. If we don't allow the rookies to mix with the veterans, how will the rookies grow? Or how much slower will they develop? We all need people to guide us. So why does the common church model separate children from the ones most able to do that guidance? Then alienate them from the rest of those guides in deference to placing them with kids their own age. And that's just, that, that's the question. We all know that when it's time to have fun, kids need some age differentiation, Right? My five-year-old girls cannot go play kickball with the 15-year-old boys and expect a good result. They're going to get trampled. They're going to, get, they're going to interfere with the game. It's just not going to be a good thing. We, we understand that. They need to grow. They need to learn the game. They need to become more capable. They need to be around people of their same competitive level. We get that. But spiritually speaking, if a young Christian gets in with all the veterans... What's going to happen if young believers in Christ, whether they're five years old, whether they're eight years old, whether they're 10, whether they're 25, if they get in with people who have been living the Christian life, who have a consistent devotional life, who are serving the Lord, who have an outlook, a a worldview that is directed towards the things of God. If they get in with people who are living the Christian life, spiritual veterans, what's going to happen? Well, they're going to get serious, too. They're going to say, aha, I love God. They're doing what God says. I can connect the word of God to what they're doing. I want to be like that too. And they can start to grow. This is called discipleship. And it's the very heart of the Great Commission, is it not? In Matthew 28. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That word, make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I've commanded you. The very essence of the Great Commission is discipleship. In Paul's day, there were only two categories. He said, I was once a child, and then I became a man. And I put away childish things. I grew up, and I did what a man does. Our contention today is that the age segregated model lends itself to keeping young people spiritually immature. It's not that it's always that way. It's not that it has to be that way. It's that it predisposes young people to be able to stay mature when they could otherwise be growing and learning. And our model is a little bit different. Much more could be said. I don't know much more needs to be said. But Legacy Baptist Church insists parents, elders... Those of you who are older in the church insists that you guide the young people spiritually, and if you don't it won't happen and that 's not inherently a bad thing. You have the help and support of the church, your pastor the men of the, the men of the church we, we, to, to lead this church to guide this church to give uh, Parents to give mothers and fathers the support that they need to help uh, we who are in the church learn how to guide each other, learn how to disciple. Children, you have a whole church of older men and women who should be showing you how to live this Christian life, who you can learn from. Older men and women, why not take a younger believer with you the next time you go to do some aspect of ministry? Children, if you're a member of this church, why not get busy serving it? Find a ministry. Say, there's no ministry. Well, then create a ministry. Say, I'm not very creative. Well, then ask pastor. He'll find a ministry for you. Why not get busy serving? Why not get busy doing the work of the Lord? You don't have to be an adult before you do that. If you're a part of this church, if you're a member of this church, you're a part of the body. Let's get busy doing something for it, for the Lord. That, that's the model. That's the philosophy. That's the idea. The non-age segregated model helps us remember that it's time for us to grow up and to get busy doing the things of the Lord. Instead of saying spiritually infantile, which, by the way, many Christians never grow out of. Instead of staying spiritually infantile, let's encourage one another to press forward in our spiritual life. And we believe that this model not only helps parents remain engaged to the fullest extent in their children's spiritual well-being, but then helps the whole church recognize the responsibility of multi-generational discipleship. So that finishes up the the problems related to age segregated ministry let's talk about the challenges the problems that can be related to family integrated ministry again we use that term because it sounds a little bit better than what we normally would say non age segregated Um, and we simply kind of back off from family integration because there's a, a movement out there right the family integrated church movement that we're not comfortable with And that's the face of the movement. So we just, we don't really label ourselves family integrated, though in most cases that's, that's an appropriate term for us. These problems exist in every church that we're going to talk about, but the nature of the non-age segregated model, particularly as it relates to the non-age segregated model at this time in history, in other words, as a, a model that is a minute percentage of, of churches in the Western world, uh, brings about some unique concerns and some unique difficulties that we have to fight through. A uh, hundred years ago, we may not have had to have fought through these uh, as one of the majority of the churches in the Western world not having Sunday school or not having youth group. But now we do. And we're going to talk about several of these problems that you and I have to look out for, you and I have to contend with in our own hearts and in our church because of the model that we have at this time and at this age. And the first one of these challenges, the first one of these problems is simply, I'm calling it, enfolding. There's a true danger among non-age segregated churches that the people in the church begin to enfold into themselves. Uh, this is not so much a natural side effect of the non-age segregated model. As a matter of fact, you would think that if we're all interacting with each other on a more, um, on a, on a more level basis where children are interacting with adults and adults are interacting with children, you would think that we would be more comfortable reaching out, right? But there's a problem with this particular day and age that causes us to unfold. And this is a well-known phenomenon for those of you that are homeschoolers. It's been a well-known phenomenon among homeschooling families uh, for several decades now. Because we're so different from the world around us, the temptation is to only interact with and invest in people who are like ourselves. They're the ones we relate to. They're the ones we're comfortable around. So we, we really are just not comfortable outside because our thinking, our way of thought is so different. And so we are tempted to enfold into ourselves. However, in doing so, we violate the very essence of our call as believers, Paul speaks to this natural human instinct in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, in this case, he's speaking about uh, the difference between believers and unbelievers and how the church interacts with them. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, and we can draw a principle out of this. He said, I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or railer or drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. So, um, Paul is speaking of church discipline here. He's speaking of how the church is intended to operate. And as he does so, he says, look, when I told you not to company with fornicators, I didn't mean not to company with people in the world who are that because that's who they are. They they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And if you were going to not have company with people who are sinning, but they're dead in their trespasses and sins, then you simply can't be in the world. And then what do you do? Well, you go live in a monastery around people that are like you for the rest of your life and you have no interaction with the world because to interact with the world would be to interact with sinners because they are sinners by nature. He said, that's not what I was talking about. When I was instructing you, I was instructing you if there are people in the church who claim to be believers but they're walking contrary to sound doctrine, you separate from them and this is church discipline. But do you see the principle here? Paul says you can't come out from the world. You must be around the world. I don't want you to leave the world. And we can have that temptation in the non-age segregated model. That because we're so different and we understand each other and we think so alike, that we enfold into ourselves and we just become this little island that, that has a wall around it that nobody gets to come into or out of unless you're like us because we just, we, we, we don't relate to anyone else. We don't, we, we, we don't want to be around anyone else. We're trying to protect our children from that. We're trying to protect our families from that. We're trying to protect our church from that. And, and in doing so, we can get out of balance. Poe rebukes them for having this idea that we are going to separate from the world for their sin. For indeed, how can we reach a world we never touch? When Christians are looking for a church in this generation, one of their top priorities is what? Programs, right? Programs. We've had many people who have come and go from this church and they say, what programs do you have? And we say, well, we don't. And they say, okay, thank you, and then they move on. Do you have a program for my kids? They're convinced that the church which doesn't have programs is a church which doesn't care about children. And this is a difficult thing for we who who truly have assumed the mindset of non-age segregation because what we try to express through our model is that we don't exclude programs because we don't care about kids, as a matter of fact from our perspective quite the opposite. We exclude programs because of how much we care about our kids. But to express this means we must be willing to listen, they must be willing to listen. This is not an easy thing. What's easier? Just to unfold, right? To find people like us, to be with people like us, they already get it, they already understand, just unfold. I can. Re- I often receive this even among pastors. I have many pastors who have deeply questioned our model, and they they uh, assume that because I uh, espouse this particular model of the church, that I just plain don't care about kids, that I have no interest in children, that I have no interest in the next generation of the church, that I am effectively abandoning the Great Commission of multi generational discipleship because we don't have things for our children. And it's a difficult thing to try and convince people that that it's the exact opposite in our minds. And because of these battles, not just uh, among the world, but even among the church, we can be tempted to unfold. But this cannot be. If we are not in the world, we cannot reach the world. If we are not among other believers, how can we, through Christian fellowship, have valid, good discussions to get to what is best for the church. But the world sees us as so different, and indeed many in this world are so opposed to us, that it's natural for us to want to unfold. We dare not, though. We must keep a healthy balance of loving interaction among one another, building each other up in the faith, but always reaching out to those who are not, like us, they don't understand the method or they don't understand the philosophy and in interacting with them so that we might share our convictions, so that they can share ours, and so that we can all become better for Christ. Secondly, evangelism. One of the other problems that family integrated or non age segregated churches tend to struggle with is evangelism. And this uh, kind of goes hand in hand with the idea of enfolding. Uh, they're, they're, in many ways, two sides of the same. Coin. Evangelism is difficult work, isn't it? It's difficult work. You have to tell others about Christ. You have to lead others to Christ. Then you disciple them into solid, self sufficient, reproducing believers in the gospel. And that's not an easy thing. That's a difficult thing to do. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes patience. It takes true commitment. And yet we are called to actively evangelize the world for Christ. Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter five verses thirteen to sixteen, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. We are called to two distinctives living in this age. First, we are the salt of the earth, an agent of cultural and societal influence through our manner of living. Salt adds flavor. salt is a preservative as God's people, we are called to be... In the world, and through tireless devotion to the integrity of the Word of God, to make this world understand that that the way we live, the integrity within which we live, is indisputably connected to the true and living God. And if we fail to be salt, if we as God's people become so like the world that we lose our savor, our saltiness, well, then we're spiritually worthless spiritually good for nothing but to be cast down and trodden under foot of men if we aren't living out the distinctives of our Christian testimony among the world in which we live we are by the testimony of the Lord valueless toward helping the kingdom of God move forward but then Jesus said this as he continued in Matthew 5 ye are the light of the world a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light to all that are in the house. Then he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So secondly... We are the light of the world. Salt is what we might call a passive agent. It's added to food in order to flavor that food. By nature of its presence, it enhances flavor. It preserves. Light is an active agent. It actively shines unless it is actively obscured. So too, as believers, we are not simply called to be passive agents touching the world around us as we live for Christ, but we are called to be active agents as well, allowing the light to shine into the darkness, actively going out into the darkness and shining that light into the world vocally and demonstratively. Salt is you being a noticeably good person, a person who has a distinct code of ethics that reflect the truths of God's word. Light is you being a public follower of Jesus Christ. Unapologetically reflecting the message of the gospel into the lives of others. Salt and light. Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. For what purpose? That ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why are you here? What have you been made as a child of God to do? Why? After you became a child of God, were you left on this earth? Why didn't God just take you to heaven right away after he saved you? If that is the end all be all, right? If if salvation is the end of the journey, the destination, the thing for which we all must strive, and that's it, then when we got saved, why didn't God just say, okay, come on home? Because there's a job to do, right? Because there's something, there's a reason why he left us here, and this is it. To become a peculiar people, that doesn't mean a strange people all the time, right? Not always different, but always distinct. A peculiar people to show forth his praises. You're here to pass what you have learned on to others to live a life of peculiarity among the world, of distinction, to be a holy nation, not a physical nation with borders, much rather a group of kingdom citizens. As we talked about today, we sang about, the church is one foundation, right? We sang about the fact that the church is made up of people all around the world, but it's one church, one faith, one hope. That's Christ. And indeed, indeed, This is the task for which we have been called. It is our purpose. We reflect the values and ideals of our homeland into the lives of those who are here. First, our children, then our communities, then our regions, and into the world, because this world is not our home. We are strangers and pilgrims on our way to our home. We reflect the ideals of our homeland, not the ideals of the land through which we're passing. So Peter would go on to say in verses 10 through 12, which in time past, speaking of us as a church, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Then he says this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among yourselves in your monasteries where no one can see you, It's not what the Bible says. Hidden behind the stained glass walls of your church? It's not what the Bible says. That ye may have your conversation honest among the Gentiles, the unbelievers. That whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. God has not called us to unfold He has called us, much to the contrary, to evangelize. He has called us to expand, to reach out, to win others, not to our way, not to our way of thinking, but to Christ. To Christ. We don't go out as evangelists of a non-age segregated model, even. That's not what we do. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to go out and evangelize Christ. And then, as with many different churches you make a case for why you believe what you do best aligns with what Scripture is. And then we decide that through prayer with the Holy Spirit's help, through experiences and understanding, and we move forward for Christ. We don't call others through manipulation, through insistence, but through a life which accurately reflects the truths of God's Word and which boldly proclaims those truths when the opportunity arises. So we declare the truths of the gospel and we seek to show people the difference between error, between truth, through the difference between the world and the church of Christ. And as a whole, this is already challenging. I mean, all Christians face this challenge, especially in this age. And we are in perhaps one of the most difficult ages ever for this challenge. Never has it been easier to huddle away. We don't really have neighbors anymore, right? Communities really aren't, aren't a big deal anymore, and even if we did, we would be so very different from them, not just because we're believers, but because as believers, then we take this extra step in this non-age segregated model. Christians have always lived as foreigners in the world. But we live not just as foreigners in the world, but because of our particular ideas, we can live even as foreigners to much of the church. Not in doctrine, but simply in practice and method and philosophy. And if we aren't careful, we can become so defensive about who we are and what we are that we just get tired and we don't want to talk about it anymore. And instead of that extending only to our defense of, say, the philosophy that we would hold or defense of the ideologies that we have come to respect, it becomes all muddled together and we just stop telling anyone. We just get comfortable being around people that agree with us, that think like we do. And that's not what God has called us to be, and really it's not healthy. So we face these challenges. Some are touched more, some are touched less. There are certainly people more predisposed to a zeal for evangelism, other people that are less disposed. But characteristically, it has touched those of our model in a deeper way, and we must resist this. And this is, by the way, one of the primary reasons why we have the Assembly of Believers. We come together as a church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Tuesday night. And if I can put it this way, we recharge our batteries. We come out of the world into the church and we find that place of rest, that place of peace, that oasis. And then after we get recharged, after we find rest and rejuvenation, we are called to go back out into the world and fight the battle. Church is intended to be a place of rest. It is intended to be that place where we're reminded that we're not alone, as we so often feel. That we're not the only one. That it's not just us out here. And then we can have confidence to go out and to put ourselves out there, knowing that in doing so we might face some scorn. We might face some ridicule. We might face some hatred. But you know what? That's okay because that's what we can expect. That's That's what our Lord received. But then we come back together to a group of people that do understand what the Word of God says, that do agree with us in faith and practice. And we can recharge. We can be rejuvenated. So we're called by God to evangelize the world. And in a model which draws, which can, ought to draw us all so close to each other, to be a, a family as a church and to interact with one another on such a level where children are interacting with the elderly and the elderly are interacting with the children and it draws the church together in that way, we must maintain an eagerness to win others to the truth of the cross. Considering these two points together, enfolding in evangelism, I hope, I'm sure you can see how closely they relate. We dare not just enfold into ourselves. We dare not lose our zeal to evangelize. We dare not begin thinking that anybody who doesn't think the way we think, uh, any other church that doesn't do what we do or think as we think or, or implement what we implement is a problem. We cannot go there. We cannot be there. It's simply not a valid way to live. Church demographics. We have two more to get through. Church demographics is our third uh, problem or, or potential problem here. Um, the idea when I say church demographics is th- a danger that we face is the possibility of becoming so family-oriented that those who do not have a family feel underserved or feel left out, whether that is parents without children, single men, single women, the elderly, youth who come without their parents. There's a, a real potential for them to feel as though they are underserved in our churches. A church which is so heavily reliant upon the family will be tempted to ignore everyone else. But we must remember that Jesus Christ did not die for families. Jesus Christ died for individuals. And as we minister to our children, we must look outward to serve the needs of those in our midst who don't fall into that bracket. And that can be something that falls away in a non-age segregated model. Back at the end of our family series last June, I preached a message, I believe it was a Sunday evening message, called The Doctrine of Singleness. In it, we established the clear biblical teaching that being a single man or a single woman is certainly not an inferior life in Christ. And by Paul's own reckoning, by Paul's own example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he insists that in fact the single Believer, the man or woman who has not been uh, entered into a marriage relationship has a much higher ceiling, a greater capacity to devote themselves to the things of the Lord because they are not as encumbered by the things of this earth, by needing to care for a wife, needing to care for children. Paul insisted throughout 1 Corinthians 7, based upon the persecution of the time, that those who were able to do so without falling into the sin of fornication, should remain unmarried and devote their lives wholly to the things of God. Now, it goes without saying that God loves families, right? That is God's desire. It's his design to pass the faith from one generation to the next. But it is perhaps sufficient for us to say that to ignore, to scorn, or to otherwise demean single men or women in the church is to ignore, scorn, and demean those for whom Christ died. And if our church fails to accept any demographic, we have indeed failed in Christ's purpose for the body of Christ. So whether we're talking about young people, uh, whether we're talking about single men and women, or even our elderly, we live in an age that has no regard for the elderly. Whereas for hundreds of generations, elders in society have held a position of utmost respect with with. Very few exceptions. They were seen as the jewels of society and as the source of wisdom and understanding. They are now cast aside as relics of a previous age and a previous way of thinking. Their wisdom is ignored. Their efforts are disregarded. People see the elderly as a crutch and an inconvenience rather than as a treasure. We can speak to so many reasons why this is so in our age. The common acceptance of the lie of evolution with its philosophy of survival of the fittest Says that the elderly are beyond their ability to contribute to society, and so they are no longer worth much to us. That, that that leads to this social, socialistic, communistic concept, which, by the way, evolutionary thinking is the very foundation for that philosophy. Insisting that elderly people have outlived their usefulness, they are no longer contributing. They are unworthy of care, regard, life. They are just so. Uh, sucking up from the system, right? They're 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 a leech on the system, and they need to be dealt with. And this sentiment is becoming more properly, or more um, popular, excuse me, primarily because our society is becoming far more godless. Why is abortion such a, a popular thing? Why why are they fighting tooth and nail for it? Well, because these young children uh, that are born out of uh, parental responsibi- uh, irresponsibility become a tax upon the system. They're inconvenient. They're inconvenient for mom. They're inconvenient for probably not for dad because dad's going to be absent. And so you kill them. So they're not an inconvenience to you and they're not an inconvenience to society. Same on the other end, right? The elderly, they're past their time. They can't contribute to society anymore. They're just uh, taxing our system. There's a lot of medical care. It takes a lot to keep them healthy. It takes a lot to keep them moving. Uh, That's just a tax on the system. They're not contributing. Let's kill them. But in every corner of the biblical record, we find the elderly to be worthy of our honor and respect. Proverbs 20, 29. The glory of young men is their strength. The beauty of old men is the gray head. Proverbs sixteen thirty one. the hoary head, hoary meaning white, is a crown of glory. It is to be, if it is to be found, if it be found, excuse me, in the way of righteousness. Here we find that the man who has lived a righteous life in, uh, for the Lord, for him to become an old man is a crown of glory for him. He has served the Lord. He's a, a veteran of the battle. And as a veteran, he's to be respected. We, for the many among us who have lived a substantial portion of your life, we fully understand, you fully understand. I, I keep wanting to say we there, but you know, then people look at me and say, you pastor, ah, you know, you're too young, don't, 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 lot, don't lot yourself in with those old people. But anyway, um, for those who have lived a substantial portion of their life, they fully understand that for a man to live a life of faithfulness to the Lord is an achievement. To come to the end of your days, having served the Lord with distinction, is an achievement. These people are not people to be disregarded. They are people to be cherished, to listen to them, to grow, and to learn from them. 1 Timothy 5 says this of widows. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home, to requite their parents, for for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers. Excuse me, that's not changing. Prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide for his, not for his own house and specifically for those of his own house, especially, sorry, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The church is called to honor widows who are widows indeed. Paul would go on to describe a widow indeed as one who is, um, uh, in verse 9, as one who is ab- uh, beyond the age of ev- either being able to find a husband to care for her or who does not have family to care for her. So he says if she's beyond 60 years old and she has no family to care for her, then the church is responsible to care for her. Honor her in this way. If she's uh, before 60, then she should remarry. Um, If she has um, children or nephews at home, let them first learn to show piety. Let them first learn what it is to serve God by serving their parents, by honoring their parents, by taking care of their parents. That's their responsibility, first of all. But if she doesn't have that, and if she's beyond marrying age, well then, the church needs to take care of her. Can you see in this doctrinal command the honor that is intended to be given to those in our society who are are elderly. And if you don't care for your own, especially for those of one's own house, you're as bad as a denier of the faith. You have denied the faith, Paul says. You You are worse than an infidel, a denier of the faith. All of this simply reminds us that God cares about more than just families, right? Every demographic in society matters to God because people matter to God. And if people matter to God, then people need to matter to us. And if sinners matter to God, then sinners need to matter to us. And if Jesus said, as he did in Matthew nineteen fourteen, Suffer the little children, forbid them not to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Then we need to not for- forbid the children. And if we find, as we do in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, uh, that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ came to, uh, into the world to save sinners then we need to be caring about sinners and if we find as we have explored already that the church is called to love the single Christian and the elderly and, and, and every demographic well, then far be it from us to marginalize any of them in our church and this can be a temptation in a non-age segregated model that we must avoid one final danger The final danger that comes from this model is authority. This is perhaps the most interesting of challenges. Many families join the family integrated movement or the non-age segregated movement because they see a tremendous lack of of leadership in the church today. And particularly, if we may say, a, a tremendous lack of encouragement for men to lead their families and for men to lead the church both of these situations, uh, in situations uh, where where men are not leading their families or where men are not leading the church, are um, are not God's design. Many churches are almost entirely female-led and are centered entirely around children for church. Both of these are unbiblical. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks as we pinpoint it a little bit more, but Isaiah 3 tells us two of the surest signs of judgment that God cites in Israel when Israel was about to be taken into captivity was that the women lead and the children are tyrants over over the society. Isaiah chapter 3. Verses 12 and 13. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err. And destroy the way of thy paths, the Lord standeth up to plead, and standeth to judge the people. Children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Sure signs of an apostate society. We'll talk more about that as I mentioned. But men, fathers, when this understanding of their authority in the home, when they understand that they are to be the authority in the home, is coupled with years and years of fighting against churches and schools and doctors and government and society to be able to maintain the authority that they believe is their God-given right. Something interesting happens to a father. These fathers know what they believe. They've set up their lives and homes accordance with what they believe the Bible has called them to do. And what often happens is that they inadvertently become extremely resistant to commitment to authority figures. Now, we'll talk in just a couple of weeks about church authority on a more um, focused basis and learn that church authority is ordained by God. It is biblical and it is, in fact, essential to to, to the Christian life. But what many of these fathers have done is because they have become so used to resisting pressures from every side, they just don't trust anymore. They won't commit to a church because they're always ready to leave at the first sign of conflict or at the first sign of doctrinal discrepancy, confusion, aberration. They're ready to bail. Rather than to commit to a body to work for its perfection, they stay at arm's length. They will do what is natural by way of instruction. They'll chew the meat and spit out the bones. They will admit that no man is perfect. They'll admit that no body is perfect, but they won't submit to the authority of the church elders because they are so used to standing on their own that it just kind of becomes a part of who they are. Not necessarily intentionally or or by, by dogmatic rule. It's just kind of the the way it is. And you say, well, Pastor, can you quantify this only by being in the movement? Only by being around it? Church authority is established doctrine. It's taught in the Word of God. And so many, and and dare I say most of the men uh, in the family integrated movement have to wrestle with this. And there are many, I wouldn't say most, but there are many who have simply chosen to reject church authority. They won't commit themselves to a church. They'll contribute, maybe more so than many of the members will contribute. But they won't place themselves formally under the church's authority because to do so is to make themselves vulnerable. And this is an imbalance created in the heat of battle as fathers fight for the right to lead their families in a culture and even in a church which has presented male leadership and masculinity in general as, a, as, as something that is not important at the very least. Fathers are battle-worn. They're weary and they become unwilling to trust anyone but themselves when it comes to their family because with trust comes vulnerability. And so their solution is to take advantage of the, what the church has to offer to contribute but not to commit. And this is a problem As we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, because God has designed Christians to be a part of an accountability group called the church, where they are under authority, where there is mutual accountability. Say, prove it, Pastor. I will. Just not today. We'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. So it's my prayer that in this final message, in our case for family integration, we are being very self-aware. I had no intention of spending three weeks on this. I don't like to spend this much time on something topical uh, unless it's deeply walking through passages, though though still topical. This is outside of the norm, and, and you all know that. We understand the advantages to the non-age segregated model. We talked about that at length last week. But we must also understand that there are disadvantages, dangers, problems. We recognize our position. We're not proud of the position itself. We're not here just to rebel against the status quo. Not because we think we know something the rest of the church does not. And that makes us special or better or superior. We, we are here and we are doing what we're doing simply because we believe it's best. But we must understand that there's work to be done. And there is work to be done. We're part of a very small number of churches in this age attempting to, if I can put it this way, reinvent the wheel to get it back to what it was before 60 or so years ago. But we do it because we think it's best. Best for families, but also best for the church, for the health of the church, for multi-generational faith building from one generation to the next. And we believe this not because we have thought of every contingency or because it doesn't present its unique challenges, but most decidedly because we believe that it most clearly reflects the biblical model. And if it does indeed do this, then it gives us the best chance at aligning ourselves with God's revealed word and when we align ourselves with God's revealed word, that gives us the best chance of spiritual success. The best chance to see our children grow up and pass the faith on from one generation to the next. To be strong in the faith. To become what Christ would have them to be. And that's what we desire. That's what we're longing for. We're longing to see every young person in this church... Far from what the statistics are saying, which is that three out of every four children are leaving the church today. Three out of four. We desire that 100% of the young people that are in here today would be able through a life lived of of multi-generational discipleship where they're seeing men and women who have fought the battles and won the battles and have seen Christ work, truth validated in their lives as they hear it and as they serve and as they live it so that by God's grace 100% of the young people in this group will grow up to serve the Lord with all their heart with all their soul with all their might Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 right that's the goal that's the desire and this is simply the way we 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 believe it's best to do it and that's the case that I've presented here over these past 3 weeks why we believe it's best but where we need to go from here the trials the trouble troubles the challenges that we face. And they're not insurmountable, but we need to know they're there so that we can guard against them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we studied it today, looked into these verses, sought to draw out the principles therein that it would have been clear. I know there's some folks that haven't been here for all three messages uh, I know that there's some folks who, who aren't necessarily sold on our model of ministry, and all of that is fine. But we pray that you would help each of us to discern your will, understanding what we now understand, and that for those who are eager to be a part of what this church has identified and believe is right, that it would move us forward to uh, greater opportunities to minister, to evangelize, to help our children transition their faith from the faith of their fathers to their faith. We commit these things to you and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.